0: Happy to be back after Easter? What a joy, what a joy it is to be with God's people in worship. I don't know if you remember um, back, hopefully you do, uh, to, you know, when when you first came to know and accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Uh, maybe you're in this room and you haven't yet, and that's, that's okay. Uh, keep coming, keep listening, uh, keep hearing of his truth. But yeah, for 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 many of us you know the testimony I'm not one of these folks but you know the prayer that I have for my children is that you know they don't they don't have some you know I was in high school when I finally understood Jesus my prayer is that my kids in high school will look back and be like I don't really know I just grew up in the church and and I just always knew him and you know, and that's how, how it goes. Maybe that's you. Maybe you didn't have this, like, defining moment. But, but whether you have known Christ your whole life, you have this one instance in your, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever that you came to know him, whatever your story is, most Christians go through what, what I like to call phases of the faith. Uh, I guarantee you that I didn't make that up. Uh, I don't know where, it, you know, I didn't take it from anybody else. But I'm sure I'm not the first person to use that. It just sounds too good, right? But, but phases of the faith, we have these times as we come to know Christ and as we grow in him, where we go through various phases, right? And so for me, I, I came to know the Lord in high school, uh, around the, the ninth, between ninth and tenth grade time frame, and, and I went through a couple different phases of, of faith myself, right? The first was what I call the on fire for Jesus, the euphoric phase, Right? You just came to know Christ. I, I remember I was on a beach in Benton Harbor, Michigan at some private beach. We were worshiping on a mission trip and I thought all the songs were dumb and then one day I thought they weren't all of a sudden, right? It was just like song one happens. I'm like, all right, people are singing to the dude in the sky. Like the spirit just grabbed me and, and the next thing you know is that the songs were making sense and I was worshiping on a beach. Uh, beautiful, picturesque, right? You can make a movie out of it. And, and I came home and it was this idyllic phase where I'm like, I was on fire. I'd tell anyone who wanted to listen who Jesus was and what he'd done. Uh, and I, I, you know, I started coming back to my church where I had come to youth group because my parents kind of encouraged and semi-made me. But for whatever reason, I, I got involved in all other kinds of things in the church world. Anything I could get my hands on. Right? I would help with kids. I would go volunteer here. I just, got, I, I just wanted to serve and, and do. And, and oh man, like if you encountered me, you couldn't talk about anything else. Right? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been in that phase. And then eventually, I got into the sponge phase where I said, you know, all right, I got to absorb everything there is. I don't know these stories. I was the kid in Sunday school when they were like, and then Noah and the flood, and all the other kids were like, I we know. And I was like, wait, he flooded what? Like, that was like a new thing to me, right? Because I hadn't grown up with, with scripture. And so I'm like, wait, like all people died? Why do we have those paintings on the side of children's murals? Like, it's a genocide story, right? You ever think that's a little weird? Like, Noah is a story of, of complete genocide of the entire human race. But if you go to, like, any kid's ministry hallway, they're, like, painted in the animals two by two, right? I had a seminary professor who, that drove them nuts. If they walked into a church and saw those murals, they're like, it's a genocide story. Like, there's better. Anyway, I don't know why it's doing that, but let's try that. See how that does. So I go through that sponge phase and I'm absorbing and I'm reading everything I can get my hands on, you know, both Bible itself and books about the Bible and books about books about the Bible. And then eventually you come to a discontented phase. At least I did. For me, this happened around college. Um, I was in, in Geneva College to be a youth ministry major. I was going to be a youth pastor. I ended up becoming a youth pastor. And, and I started to get discontented, not with, with God but with the church and kind of through that with with the gospel and and Christianity in general. And it's because you started to observe people in the church not acting the way people in the church should act. Maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe this is you, right? Raise your hand. Don't name names and don't look at them. But raise your hand if someone in the church, this or another church you've ever been a part of, has, has made you feel like Christians are hypocrites. Raise your hand if you feel like that might have been you at some point. <laughs> and someone else's, someone else's hand in this room might be raised at, you know, at your, right? It's, it's the reality of the situation, but we go through it, and I became very disenchanted with the church. I became very pessimistic about the church. I said, you know, if the, if, if the gospel is what, what it is, and if God is, is who he says he is, how can his people act this way? You know, they talk behind each other's backs, and there's power grabs, and, you know, people want, want to be part of the church for what it can do for them, and, you know, they just, this is just, they're here for their pet project, and, and whatever whatever reasons that I had over the years, it just became like the church just became more of a nuisance to me. I'm like, man, God is great. If this church just weren't part of it, right? It's like teachers who are like, teaching is the greatest job ever. If it weren't for students, right? Like it just it just became. And I mean, I really it really started to get to me because every church I walked into, you know, there's there's kind of certain levels of wickedness and hypocrisy and and people that don't act the way that Christ followers ought to act. And so it just I just became very discontented um, to the point where I'm like, you know, I think this Christian thing's great. I just don't know if I want to do the church part of it. Uh, So maybe I just won't go. Uh, Luckily for me, I was interning in places, so like I had to come to work. (laughs) I never had the option. From from college on, I never had the choice to skip church because it was my paycheck and I would be fired if I didn't go. And so, but I think if I hadn't been in that position, I probably would have spent some time away from the church because I just grew discontented with it, right? The behavior of the people didn't match the gospel. Christians, am I not right? Christians should look and act a certain way. If we're going to be believers and we're going to follow Jesus, well then, darn it, we should act like it. And they didn't, and it drove me nuts. Then I began to learn that my view towards God's church and its people was very pharisaical. I had a very wise uh, pastor friend once tell me, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because you'll screw it up. (laughs) And I believe that, and I will take that to the very end of my days into retirement from ministry. If you ever find, if if you have discontentment with this church, congratulations, you're in good company, so does everyone in the room. If you think, there are people here that are hypocrites, they're not acting the way they should, they rub me the wrong way, great, keep coming, you will fit right in. It was a pharisaical way of thinking. This idea that the church should somehow reflect the idealized version of itself that Christ eventually promises to call home as his bride. When it's not there yet. And so I was taking this Pharisee approach. You know, we read about Pharisees in Scripture and the way that they they treat and and think about people and and, want to be higher than them and better than them and put down others and build up all these laws and different rules to try to puff themselves up as the the Christians that everybody should emulate, right? And in the meantime, I just realized, wow, I'm doing that. Like, who am I? somehow place this standard that I can't meet upon all the people that I go, just so I can feel good about the church that I attend. And I learned a very important lesson that day. There is a reason the Lord calls his people sheep. Sheep aren't the most intelligent. I'm not saying Jesus thinks you're dumb. That's not what I'm saying at all. But sheep, like when they fall down, they can't get up. they, they They are naturally prone to wander Can be led astray and not do or follow the lane they're supposed to follow. That's why you have shepherds and, and sheepdogs to guide them. If you ever see like a sheepdog guide the sheep through the pen, like they just will run in one direction. It's the dog's job to like steer them, right? Because they're sheep. We as God's people are sheep. And I'm not saying that I'm the pastor and you're the silly sheep. I'm saying we're all sheep. When Moses took the people through to, to the exodus on the other side, what's the first thing they do? We talked about this. They groan that they have no food, as if God couldn't make it rain from the sky. right? We, as God's people, are prone to wander, and naturally so. And to put this pharisaical standard upon them is not fair or good or right or helpful to the church. Do you ever feel this way about the church or people? The way I felt? Do you ever go home and just... You know, maybe you have the discontentment. You know, maybe you're, maybe you're in a Bible study and, and someone really kind of said something that rubbed you the wrong way. Maybe you thought they really knew their Bible and then they said something that makes you go, wow, they're like way off. I don't know if I want to be part of that Bible study anymore. Or, you know, maybe you're in some kind of committee meeting and a decision gets made that you don't like. And you're like, "Wow, well, if Jesus ran this committee, they wouldn't have made that call. <laughs> right? Whatever it is. Or maybe someone wronged you in the lobby. Or even worse, wronged a member of your family. And it was 13 years ago and you're still holding a grudge. If there's someone who was wronged exactly 13 years ago, I'm really sorry I'm not talking about you. That's just a random number. People go, he was talking about me, he knows. That's the world we live in. For the next few weeks, we're going to spend five weeks in the book of Galatians. And Galatians hits on this. If you've ever felt like this, if you've ever felt a discontentment with the church and God's people... And if you've ever felt like this Pharisaical kind of, everybody should just, oh, people would just do their job and be Christians, right? If that's been you, then this is the book for you, because Paul in it decimates this idea that anything other than grace is what ought to reign supreme in our hearts. Right? He's trying to unpack that in this book. What Paul is saying is Jesus suffered immeasurably, humiliation and physical torture. Both before and on the cross, he died and he rose for you so that you could have life. And he died for the truth of this book of Galatians. <clears throat> right. And so that's Paul's goal. And Paul, in the first chapter of Galatians, does something really cool for pastors. He gives us a three point sermon. And so I'm not usually a three point sermon guy, I let the text tell me how many points the sermon is supposed to have. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's 13. But this is one of those times where he gives us the beautiful, perfect three-point sermon. And so Paul in chapter one of Galatians hits on three truths. Number one, we have to always go back to grace. Everything in the church, everything we do, every decision we make, every way we treat somebody, every word we speak, every confrontation we engage in, we always have to go back to grace. It's always about grace, 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 grace. If you do a word search for grace in Galatians, it's exhaustive. He will hammer this word home, and five weeks from now, you're going to be like, Pastor, please don't say the word grace anymore. I know that's hard to believe, but you will, because we're going to hammer it over and over again. That's the first thing. Number two, we have to please God rather than men. We have to. It's, It's essential for the Christian life that we put pleasing God above pleasing men. And Number three, you have to remember the power of your story. And if you're wondering what the heck does that mean, we'll get get there. So let's let's stand together and hear the word of God in Galatians chapter 1. And then we'll unpack those three things. Back to grace. Please God rather than men and your story is powerful. Hear the words of Galatians 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Grace to you, there's one, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. "'Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, "'but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. "'Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas "'and remained with him fifteen days. "'But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. "'And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. "'Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, "'and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ.' The only, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. It's the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you. With gusto from now on every week. Let's have a seat. So Paul starts, uh, started the Galatian church in about 47 AD. Uh, There's some dates in play here, and this is important. Because when he says in verse 6, I'm surprised how quickly you've deserted this gospel. It's worth thinking about how quickly have they deserted the gospel. It's about 47, the fall of 47, when Paul starts to work its way through the various cities. If you go to Acts 13 and 14, you can read about how Paul goes through the cities that are in the Galatia region and starts the churches there. He visits in Acts 13, 14. He starts and he visits uh, first city in Antioch, then Iconium, then Lystra, and then Derbe. You see those cities. Those are all Galatian cities. So when you're like, when was the Church of Galatia started? It was right around then, 47 or so A.D., fall of 47. We estimate that Galatians was written in about 48 of A.D., like mid to late 48. So we're talking less than a year later. As a matter of fact, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians, and then after he's visited them, He writes the letter, and then he swings. his journey is still going, and he swings back through those towns as we get to Acts 14. And we look around like 2021, if you want to read read for yourself. He swings back through the cities on his way back from his missionary journey. This is his first journey. And then right after that, we have the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so we know that Galatians, based on content, was written before the Jerusalem Council. And so we estimate that within less than a year of starting up some of these churches in Galatia, people were abandoning the gospel that they were founded on. Imagine us being a church plant and getting it all right. In less than a year, we're just starting to toss aside the gospel that we got so excited about when we started all this stuff. Right? By the time he gets to Lystra in Acts 14:19, those from Antioch and Iconium, they're actually following him to other cities to persecute him. When he visits his last Galatian city, those from the first couple cities have followed him there and stoned the guy for what he has to say. Galatia has issues. Major issues. And Paul's trying to address them. And so the first thing he says is, listen, you have to go back to grace. Right? It's this harsh rebuke, but he starts with grace. This is the cool thing. He is really going to... This the Galatian church over the next few chapters. But the very beginning of the letter after his kind of greeting is this, is what? Grace to you. Right? So even in his preaching to them about their lack of grace, he's starting by saying, before we get into all the ways in which you stink and need to re- reform yourselves, let's start with grace. Because if I'm going to teach it to you, I'm going to first give it to you. And so he says, grace to you and peace. Why? Because we have Jesus, the author and source of all of our peace. Right? What do we talk about? When Jesus was risen and he starts appearing to the disciples. We said this last week. What's one of the things that Jesus says? Peace be with you. Literally, hi, I'm peace. I'm with you. Right? And so Paul is saying, even in the midst of their failure to live out the gospel the way that they're supposed to, grace and peace is with you because Jesus has come and died and risen and covers the multitude of sins of which you are guilty. Now, let's get into them. All right. So, what was happening in the Galatian church? You had this group called the Judaizers. And as the gospel started to spread and as the message of Jesus started to become more and more prevalent, and this idea of grace only, of all the works and the law and all these things being secondary, there was this group of folks that started to say no. The biggest place that you see their, their protest is by calling on the Gentiles in Galatia, who are Christians. To be circumcised. They wanted to mix those things together. They wanted to have the Jewish law and the Christianese all in one kind of nice melting pot, right? You can believe the Jesus thing, but you also have to still follow the law of the Jewish people before he came. Because that's all still part of it. And part of how you're saved is by making sure you do these things. You have to be circumcised or else you're not part of the cool kids club, right? Right? So they come in, and Paul will have none of this. Absolutely none of it. Paul, in verse 8, starts to say some crazy radical things. He says, listen, if anyone, even if an angel of the Lord appears to you and proclaims some kind of a gospel contrary to this one, they should be accursed. It's a pretty serious thing. And then just in case you didn't get it, he doubles down in verse 9. He says, listen, anyone who teaches you a gospel that doesn't line up with this one, you ought to be accursed. And he's saying this in the midst of all these Judaizer people who are doing the accursable offense. He's essentially saying, hey, you guys, like what you're telling everybody, yeah, curse on you. Sorry if I pointed. I don't mean. Sorry, I'm not cursing, Ralph. Yeah, no worries about that. But that's a scary thing, isn't it? Like, it's not every day that people in Scripture, like Paul, who has a lot of weight in the New Testament, just starts cursing people. But he's saying, if you proclaim a gospel that is different from the one that I proclaim to you, be accursed. And so why is Paul so angry at this? Why not let them just be and move on? They want to blend their law. What harm is it really? Let them be circumcised. Every once in a while, it just does this. We'll twist it a little bit and see what happens. All right. The reason is because what's at stake here in the grace versus law debate is the foundation of our entire faith as Christians. There is nothing that matters more than grace. It's literally the only thing that ultimately matters. Oh, but we have to get church polity right. Yep. And we have to make sure that worship is in the order that that God tells us. We have to worship him the way he calls us to. Yep. But ultimately, compared to, to the grace of Christ, none of that matters. Because all of the ways in which we fall short of the glory of God are covered by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And for Paul to have watched and seen as the Savior died, And to then be confronted as he hunts down the Christians by Jesus himself, by the risen Lord. And set straight and put on the path to be the primary influence in the New Testament. For him to see people, after watching and seeing what Jesus has done, act as if it's not enough. is something he can't live with. That's what happens when we think that we need to add to the gospel of Christ our own little laws and measures and ways of behavior. And yeah, it's great, you're a Christian, but if you're going to be here, you gotta, you got to think this way and act this way and walk this way and talk this way. To add those things in is to say, yeah, Jesus died for you, but like it only gets you 90% of the way. You've know, you got to do the other things to, to, to get over the hump when it comes time to go to heaven. Right? The very sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross is what's at stake. And so Paul is... Live it and man, he gives it to the Judaizers, right? Giving in to them will be to compromise the gospel's very foundation. And I won't dwell on this a whole lot longer because this is the theme of the whole book. Paul's gonna spend the rest of Galatians unpacking how it is that grace has to be everything and the ultimate thing, and how it is that when we diminish grace, how we ruin the entirety of the gospel. And exactly how and why it works that way. He's going to unpack the various things that we do to diminish the, gra- the grace of the gospel. And he's going to tell us how they're damaging. That's kind of the rest of the next five weeks of our life are spent on that. But for today, we have to understand that where the law replaces grace, you no longer have a Christian faith. You don't just have a weak version of it. You, it's gone. Grace is absolutely everything. Number two, three-point sermon. We have to please God rather than men. Paul in verse 10 throws down this gauntlet, for I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or God, or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. First question is, why does Paul put this in here? We're talking about grace and the need for it. And all of a sudden he starts talking about pleasing men and pleasing God. Because for Paul, this is the root of the problem. Man-pleasing was the whole reason the Judaizers were pushing circumcision. They wanted to avoid any confrontation with those in charge, with the religious leaders. The only reason for for a person under Christ and grace to be circumcised is so the old religious leaders stuck in the dust who now have the wrong idea, who crucified and called and, and arrested Jesus, wouldn't get riled up. It's the only reason. Right? Let's just circumcise them so that no one gets mad. It's all about people pleasing. Keep your head down and don't cause a fuss. And man, the Christian church and the people within it have been guilty of people-pleasing all of our lives and our days. Don't confront the sin of anybody in our church body because they'll get angry, right? If we call them out for it, they might leave and take their tithing dollars with them. So-and-so has been here for a very long time. We, cannot, we can't change anything that would anger that because, you know, they're, you know, they're influential. They're a founding member. What we fail to do when we seek a man-pleasing culture in the church over a God-pleasing culture is we fail to say that God is the one who actually owns this. God owns you, body, mind, and soul. God owns his church. The building, the mission of it, the vision of it, the stuff inside of it, the decisions that are made in it, all of it is his. And we as God's people are called to do one thing, to please God rather than men. And as Paul tells us, if we don't, we can't even consider ourselves to be servants of Christ anymore. Yes, it's that harsh. One of the, the commentaries I read, uh, I just thought this was just entertaining for me, a the, the little line, a little quote that they had in it. They were talking about the Ju- Judaizers, and they said they were advocating for the Galatians to lose their foreskins so they could save their own skin. <laughs> I just like that. There's like no message reason why I share that with you other than just, you know, and you know you're going to go home tonight and to go, what was the sermon about? Lose your foreskin to save your own skin. That's what the pastor said, and I don't know anything else that he said after that. It made no sense, right? I don't know Why it keeps popping. People-pleasing is a real, real problem that we have. We do it in a couple different ways. Number one, we cave to influential people, right? Money means power. And so we, there's a reason, by the way, if you ever wanted to know this, I, as your pastor, make a very adamant effort to know nothing about who in this church gives what, how much, and when. I don't know, and I don't want to know. As a matter of fact, there are very few people in this church who do know what you give. Only those who have to, because, like, someone has to take the check and put it in the bank, right? Right? We have very specific sets of people who we put in charge of knowing who gives what. And and as a session, we get trends. Like, we know what giving is. We know how it goes up and down. right? But we don't know about individual people. And I do that very much on purpose. Because someday, someday I may have to offend one of you. Not because I like offending people. But because the gospel may demand it. And when that happens, I want to know that you are the one who contributes 15% to the church's budget. And I don't care. And if you think I should care, I'm really sorry. But you're giving for the wrong reasons. That's not how it works. In a church that pleases God, and a people of God that please God rather than men, we do not worry about the influence of people. We please him and not men. One of the other things we do is we ignore hypocrisy because we don't want to hurt feelings. One of the last things we do is we hide from the cross. What do I mean by that? How many of us, when we go out into the world, we have a certain sense of embarrassment to talk about our faith? You have a chance to bring it up at work, but you don't. Because you're worried that they might judge you. The Lord died on the cross for our sins and then rose. And one of the things that he calls us to do is to follow his footsteps. When you sign on to be a follower of Christ... What you sign on for is to follow the footsteps of Jesus during Holy Week. You're almost given a certainty that you also will endure mockery. You also will endure scorn from this world. Because what Christ says about how the world works doesn't mesh with what the culture says. And we're called to go into that world and to call it out and to bring it to Christ. And to allow the Holy Spirit to work to accomplish that goal. But we don't because we're worried about what people will say or think or do to us. Right? Anything from actual persecution to just being made fun of or thought lesser of. Ah, she's that Bible thumper at work. Here she comes again. I Bet you she's going ask me to come to church for the 14th time. Right? We, we, know, we know that's how we think. Right? Because when we seek to please men rather than God... That's what we do. And Paul says, listen, you cannot live that way. People-pleasing is what hinders grace entering the world. And he's right. Number three, we have to remember that our story has an immense amount of power. The first chapter of Galatians is a little weird because he's talking about grace and then he talks about this man-pleasing. And then starting in in, in verse 11, he, he switches it up and all of a sudden just starts to give his testimony. Grace is important, blah, blah. I, Paul, a servant of. <laughs> I think we're good. I hope we're good. I'm going to put it right here awkwardly to hope that we're, we're, we're off a little bit better right but we we have to remember our story has power paul starts to tell his testimony in the midst of his proclaiming of the grace of god because here's here's something cool and, and a very very wise uh pastor that i, that I knew even from college a John, said this because you can argue biblically in a lot of different ways but one of the things that you can't argue with someone is their story and their testimony when you give your testimony to the world of how the Lord worked in your life to get you to where you are, you can't argue with it. We, we live in a weird culture. We live in a world where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And that has all kinds of detriments. But one of the great things about it is that your truth is valid. And no one gets to argue it. Because why? It's yours. People can say, well, I don't know if the Bible's true. Well, I don't know if that's historical. But what they can't argue with is, that, is your testimony of how God, whether he exists or not to them, has changed and shaped your life. And when you testify who you once were before Christ and who you now are after Christ, and you testify to the life that it's given you, and the way that your, your life has been changed and shaped by the gospel, there's no one that can come and say, well, no it didn't. You might say it's based on a fairy tale. Okay, you can believe that. But all I know is my life has changed. That's the argument if we go back a few weeks to John 9 with the blind guy, right? He's healed, and he gets brought before the Pharisees, and they start asking him, who's the guy that healed you? Who, what does he say? Who does he say he is? I don't know. All I know is, listen, you can believe whatever you want about this Jesus. All I know is this morning I was blind, and now I'm not, and he did it. I don't know how or why or or, or whatever, but he did. That's my testimony. I was a blind man, I encountered Jesus, and now I see. Do with that whatever you want to do with that. I was a hopeless, nowhere-going person in life. I had no purpose, no aim, no goals, And the Lord grabbed me and took me and said, I am going to take you and I am going to go make you fishers of men, just like he said it to Peter. And I have purpose now today in 2022, because all the way back in 2003, the Lord grabbed me and said, whoever you think you are, no, you're now here. And that's your identity. That's my testimony. Fight me on it. I don't care if you think God is real. I know he is, and he's shaped and changed my life. Amen? Amen? Paul knows this, and so he gives his testimony because to the people that communicate something. Yeah, this was the guy who was killing Christians. I don't know if I believe this gospel, but man, he's certainly willing to die for it because he did a 180. He was, he was hunting Christians down, and now he's, now he's working with them. He's kind of their boss. And every time he preaches this gospel that he's so excited about, people pelt rocks at him and kick him out of the city. And what does he do? He picks himself up, he brushes himself off, and he walks right back in and he just keeps preaching. There's got to be something to it. No one is that insane to devote their life and their health and their livelihood to something they don't believe in. So maybe we ought to listen. Testimony has power. Paul knows it and we ought to know it. And the people in Galatia stoned him for that very message. And so Paul here opens with a very strong legal case for the prevalence of grace in the life of the church. We ought to be a people of grace. One of the things that the resurrection does is it is bluntly, without warning, with full-blown brunt force, kills pride in our life. We don't get to live by our own bootstraps anymore. You don't get to claim anything that you do as credit to yourself for righteousness. I don't care how much you know the Bible. I don't care how many studies you've led. I don't care that you've showed up to every work week that the church has ever had. I don't care if you've had perfect church attendance. Those things are great. Keep doing them. But ultimately, we don't care. It's the grace that saves you. None of those things are going to earn you street cred when you stand before the Lord your maker on your final day when you breathe your last. It's going to be the cross that does it and nothing else. And we know that. We ought to know that. But then as Christians, we ought to live that out to the world around us. It is appropriate to spend the weeks following Easter in Galatians because what we like to do is we like to take the message of Easter and we like to say, thanks, and now go back to the way that we always do church. And expect that the people are somehow going to show up here and clean themselves up before they come so that they fit in. Think about it, the way the church operates. It's almost like we expect the culture to do market research on us so that they know how they should behave before they show up here. Like It's just a weird thing. We are called to go into the world and to proclaim the grace of Christ. I'm too messy to ever step foot in a church. No, you're not. I think I have to spend some time getting my life together before I'm willing to walk in the... No, you don't. I'm a hypocrite and a liar and a thief. Come through the door. Here's a seat for you. It's got your name on it. You'll fit right in. Right. I've given you this quote before, but Morton Kelsey, a now dead theologian, you said that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. That's what we're to be. That's what we're called to. That's what the cross does to us. It, it just eliminates the pride inside of us that in any way says we're worthy. And we just come together as people who have found bread and show other people where to get it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that we live as God's people by God's grace and nothing else. Thank you that you loved us enough to go to the cross, to die for our sins. To love us, to care for us, and to offer that grace to us freely. Not because of any merit that we have or anything that we deserve, but purely as a gift. Thank you that you were obedient to the Father When we couldn't be and didn't know how to be. Lord, we pray that we might accept the grace that you've given us. That we wouldn't seek to try to do things on our own. But that we would live out the love of God and grace and mercy in the world around us. That People who don't know him would come to know him and know that they don't have to clean themselves up in order to get there. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care about us. Thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins. We love you and praise you. And all his people said together, amen.